called the fake news the enemy of the people, and they are. It's a serious question. I, I appreciate your passion. I share it. I've addressed this question. I've addressed my personal feelings. And I want you all to know that we are fighting the fake news. You're listening to Just Ask the Question, adventures in reporting with your host, Brian Karam. Hi, and welcome back to Just Ask the Question. I am Brian Karam, and today we're asking the question of Mark Zaid. He's a preeminent uh, attorney in the Washington, D.C. area who has gone after, well, assisted whistleblowers and assisted in the access of freedom of information through the government and has sued several presidents, including this president. So we're sitting on the back porch with Mark, and uh, I, I appreciate you being here. Thanks for, for being here oh, today. It's my pleasure. And we're going to start by just asking the question. You have sued President Trump for uh, unfair competition because of uh, Trump Tower in, in Washington, D.C. Can you explain a little bit about what that's about and tell us, do you expect to win? <laughs> Sure. So any case against a president is incredibly difficult. And I've sued every one of them since 1993, 25 years that I've been in D.C. Could a care- popular man. <laughs> yes. Couldn't care less between Democrats or Republicans. Go after them all. It's all about accountability for the people. So unfair competition is a D.C. common law tort. So this is not an emoluments case, which many people have heard of, which is a constitutional claim. The facts overlap, but they're very different causes of action. We started out in D.C. Superior Court, the local court of D.C. We got removed to federal court because of President Trump, but we're suing him in his individual capacity as well as his hotel organization, the Trump Organization. Uh, they've been leasing this hotel location, which was the old post office here in D.C., uh, for the last two, two three years uh, with like a 60-year lease. Uh, An unfair competition at its heart uh, would normally be restaurant A on one side of the street, restaurant B on the other. And if restaurant A owner starts spreading rumors that there are rats and cockroaches in restaurant B, that would be unfair competition. Competition itself is perfectly fine. It's unfair competition. So with respect to Donald Trump, the argument goes, and it is an innovative one, uh, I will acknowledge. We, we are pushing forward on the envelope. Uh, and you've received standing, right? I mean, you're, th- yep. this is in court. There is absolutely no issue with respect to that we have a proper party to sue, which is called Cork Wine Bar. It is a restaurant that's been around for a number of years that would particularly cater to lawyers, which is pretty much everybody in D.C., uh, other than reporters, <laughs> uh, lawyers, lobbyists, diplomats, you know, politicians, they would have their events at, at the wine bar. It's, it's a top wine bar. And the unfair competition becomes that when Donald Trump became president, he has exploited his use of the presidency of the Oval Office, not just himself, but his staff, his family, to send business to the hotel. So that that would normally go that would elsewhere. normally go elsewhere. Now, it some of it does. It doesn't all come to obviously Cork Wine Bar, but some would. I mean, the the best example. And at first, when actually w- the lawyers were looking to start this case, uh, we were, a group of us talked on Twitter back and forth about that we we identified this as a cause of action, and we were looking for a plaintiff, and we finally found this one restaurant that was willing, but. The Four Seasons Hotel would have had a beautiful case 
because there is a clear fact pattern where uh, certain countries used to have Qatar or Saudi Arabia. I forget. It was a Middle Eastern country. It's in the lawsuit complaint if anybody wants to look at it, which if you just Google uh, Trump Hotel Cork Wine Bar lawsuit or my name, it'll and, come and up. Let me interrupt for just a second. Cork Wine Bar, this isn't a large corporation, right? No, it's a, sm- it's it's a, a family- small family-owned restaurant. Right. I mean, you know, it's I forget how many it seats, 40, 50 people or whatever. Um, but it's not like Pillsbury or, or General Foods or something taking no. on the president. This is, in essence, the little guy trying to challenge someone who's taking advantage of their place in society to run them out of business. Yeah, it's a David and Goliath story. And now, for Seasons Hotel, whatever company owns it, that would have been a huge right. giant versus giant uh, fight, of course. And And just as an example, so this Middle Eastern country – Every year held a huge event at the Four Seasons until last year where it switched to the Trump Hotel and restaurant and made it perfectly known that it was doing that and why. In fact, a number of people, uh, foreign diplomats and, and lobbyists in particular, have made it very clear to reporters when they've been interviewed that we are switching our business to the Trump Hotel and Restaurant because we want to be able to tell the president when we meet with him later that day, hey, Mr. President, I stayed at your hotel last night. It's a beautiful hotel. You know, they don't want to say I stayed at a Holiday Inn Express. Instead, it felt like your hotel and I'm smarter than you because of Holiday Inn Express. But that Isn't type- that inherently wrong? Isn't <laughs> the Holiday Inn Express part? <laughs> Yeah, there was a seems to be a successful marketing campaign they've had, but but isn't it it, it 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 all being said and all being equal, the president of the United States is not supposed to make a profit off of off of uh, being the president of the United States. It's not a a a, a capitalist venture. I mean, he's there for us. Exactly, and you know, just like everything, we always talk about with this president, where we try to compare. To what happened before, and we can't because everything is different. In the past, the rules that govern ethics and conflicts of interest typically do not apply to the president, any president of the United States. It applies to those who work for the presidency, for work for the executive branch, the legislative branch, the judicial branch. But presidents have historically always placed their finances into a trust. Right. And most times a blind trust, meaning they have no idea if they own stock in this company or that company or in that country because of their gold resources or silver or whatever. They had no idea if they were making money on anything they were doing or not. This president is so different in that he is deliberately and ergo the unfair competition telling people go stay at my hotel. Uh, you know, uh, named after me, named at right with the big <laughs> Trump hotel on right My on brand. right on the side, both sides. Uh, you know, se- former Secretary of State Tillerson lived in the hotel for quite a while. I, he may still do so. I'm not sure. So the government was paying for him to stay there, or was it, he it, paying the government? That's a good question. I'm not sure who was necessarily paying for him. I mean, obviously, he's incredibly independently wealthy, so unclear. But a lot of members of the White House staff were repeatedly hanging around the restaurant, the hotel, the lobby bar, 
and everyone would and they were doing that intentionally because people would well, they still follow do. them yeah there. there's still a, yeah. a great number of people who hang out there they have events there i think sean yeah. spicer had a book party there um it's it for those who are engaged with the president it's it's you know meeting central still is yeah and and so you got multiple purposes or objectives there you can tell the president if you are fortunate or unfortunate enough to meet with him uh, to say, hey, I love your place. I stayed at it last night. Or you can make sure you are seen by the president or senior staff or to tell the senior staff uh, or just to see if, you, you know, if you're a tourist and you just want to go there. Uh, and just because, hey, I want to see the press secretary. I want to see the secretary of whatever cabinet level office. So this suit that you have is based on um, the the um, restaurant that is competing directly with the president. And explain to me how that's different from an emolument clause, because what we're talking about, and uh, in, in case people don't understand, I mean, the emolument clause, we're, we're, we're talking about that right now. I mean, it's, it's, you're not supposed to profit off of public service. And that, and the emolument clause in particular is basically foreign bribery. Right. You're not supposed to be receiving gifts and, and bribery from, or bribes, uh, from foreign nationals. That's why it was made known, though I don't know if there's yet any verification of this, that the president was going to donate any pro any proceeds that he received from foreign dignitaries at the hotel. That was the promise when these emolument right. lawsuits came about. And there have been at least three that I can think of. Um, crew C-R-E-W, which is a nonprofit here in D.C. They had sued in New York. They lost on standing, the term you mentioned before, meaning they were not judged to be a proper party, proper plaintiff. Then the state of Maryland and the District of Columbia have both sued for the same emoluments clause. That case in the District of Maryland our neighboring district uh, has been held to, yes, have standing and is proceeding. And then there's a case of 200 members of Congress in the Democratic Party who have sued as well in D.C., and that has been decided to have standing. The facts overlap. So the argument that we make where we cited uh, one specific example, a former Soviet bloc country, I, I want to say Azerbaijan, but I may be wrong on which one off the top of my head. Armenia, Azerbaijan, one of the former Soviet bloc countries used to have a party at our restaurant at Cork and now no longer does and has gone over to the Trump uh, Tower, as far as we are aware. A lot of political parties in particular certainly have too. So there there are facts that overlap, but the legal analysis is is very different because, again, that's a constitutional claim. And we're under a D.C. common tort. And so to make people understand or to explain a little bit about a monument clause and, and, and uh, your suit, the idea, again, being that the president of the United States is supposed to be above board and above reproach and that it sometimes what we – appearance being reality for many – uh, uh, is is uh, a problem when it appears that the president of the United States is making money off of foreign investors who are are then seeking favor from the U.S. government. Right. I mean, you think of any number of activities that a foreign government would engage in that would impact 
American businesses. Treaties or yeah. Exactly. <laughs> or, yeah. or purchasing weapons or you know, uh, where the location of a Navy base, who the vendor is that's and, used to service that base overseas. You know, any one of those things could impact financial and does financial and business the ability here. to invest in the stock market in the United States and buy right. American property. Absolutely. Now, look, you know, we have had as as the years of our country have passed, without a doubt, our presidents, in fact, most of our senior leadership in inside the government nowadays who run for political office are wealthier and wealthier all the time because of how much money it costs to run so you tend to now have more businessmen businesswomen who are or very connected into businesses internationally what's the danger of that enough well the danger being this the same type of notion as to wh- whose interests are they putting first are they putting their own personal family private business interests over those of of Americans. But again, for most people at those levels, even members of Congress and cabinet officers, they have strict ethics laws that apply to them. And, you know, the Office of Government Ethics uh, exists for that purpose, to oversee and ensure that these individuals do not break the law. The problem is the president, the vice president, are outside of that structure constitutionally. So that's why... How do we fix that? Yeah. Uh, well, other, other than a constitutional amendment or innovative use of these statutes. And now this statute, the, the Trump organization, in fact, Trump himself is arguing that he has uh, complete immunity, absolute immunity under the law as the president of the United States. And he's also indicated an argument of preemption, meaning that federal law preempts local law, that a local law, a state. I mean, again, we're in the District of Columbia, right. not a state, but a, same equivalency in this purpose, that a any type of entity like that could not enact a law to specifically address a president or a federal official. So in other that's words, the, argument. the president is above the law. That Basically, that's what they're saying. And yet, you know, yet we've been told in the press briefing room on a number of occasions, when I've asked that question point blank, is the president above the law? We always get the answer, no. But And, and they're not. And the Supreme Court has made that very clear, though, obviously, Donald Trump and other presidents who have come before him are always trying to push that but immunity it seems, further. It, it, it seems like the argument is, we're not above the law because the law places us above the law is is the argument that I seem to be getting. It's not. No, we're not above the law. We're following the law because the law says we're above the law. It's like a cyclical argument that, that makes no sense to me. It, and guess just things have changed so much, especially with this president who clearly puts his interests first. I'm not sure how any way now, else to uh, categorize to, to that. Play the but. devil's advocate for that. OK, he'll argue. Are the the um, that he doesn't put himself that he's put America first, making America great again. That we are now, you know, uh, the lowest uh, unemployment since 1969. Made new deals with NAFTA. Got my guy in. I told you I would do everything I said I I do. I have done. So I'm here for America. So when people say that you know he puts his interests first, that falls on deaf ears to some people because they say no, no, he's doing what he said he would do. He's putting us first. How do you respond to that? Yeah, I don't think that those – if we took that all at face value, I don't think those arguments necessarily have to conflict with one another. I mean, though, some of those facts 
are clearly true. Those, uh, you know, he's got two Supreme Court justices. Uh, unemployment is so low. I mean, obviously, economists and such could argue about what what the effect were that caused that. But there, there are definitely deficit spending. Yeah, there yeah. are there are definitely positive things that have happened since he assumed the presidency that are good for most of the country, not all. But the notion of putting himself first is still, you know, how many days has he gone to his own golf courses? 158. There you go, right? And how much money has been spent that the Secret Service had to reimburse uh, to rent um, hotel rooms in his hotels, in his business, in his buildings up in New York. Uh, how many times now that I've seen, uh, you know, I represent a lot of journalists, uh, including you, I should say publicly. Yeah, full, dis- full disclosure <laughs> yes. there, yes. Including He's helped us you. with some FOIA stuff. <laughs> uh, and USA Today, and I keep seeing, uh, as a client, and I keep seeing them putting uh, stories out there of the fact that you as journalists are now being charged for lunch. Yes. <laughs> At the White House, <laughs> which has never happened before. You know, here's $17 you had to pay for lunch. I hope it was a good sandwich and potato chips. So why should we care? The, the normal uh, person trying to pay their bills in, in the Midwest listens to us talking about that and go, why do I care? The economy is great. I'm doing fine. Why should I care if the president's spending time golfing and you got to pay $17 for lunch? What What's it to me? Yeah, and that's always the most difficult uh, <laughs> It's always the most difficult argument to deal with, of course. You know, it, I, I guess we can only say, look, it should matter. It should matter to everyone as to how the government operates and that the government is for the people, by the people, rather than around the people or for the individual. I mean, that's how our system was set up from the beginning. Uh, as many faults as it had from the beginning as well that we've obviously overcome, or at least still in the process of overcoming, socially, racially, gender-wise, etc. But, you know, there, there, there are a level or a number of ethical norms that we hope and strive to maintain that this administration is taking beyond the pale. Which isn't to say that prior administrations haven't done, tried to do similar things on on different topics, etc. Uh, I mean, there's always you can have criticisms against every administration. And we'll of get into that. I, that's that's you bring up a point, and and that's a point that's well worth looking at. Before people think that you're part of the resist movement or or a snowflake or or that you're a libtard or whatever <laughs> the terms are these days. You have taken to task other administrations, and one of the things that I remember well about the previous administration, the Obama administration, was that it used the Espionage Act more than any other president to go after whistleblowers. And you had your hands full with whistleblowers trying to defend them. So tell me a little bit about how it, the Obama administration failed the First Amendment and failed you know, to protect whistleblowers and how other administrations have done that. It's not just this one. Although, as we've said, your, your point being that this administration goes beyond the pale, but the others who have sinned. So let's go back and look at some of the sins, like starting with Obama and the Espionage Act. Yeah. And I'm I, I'm more conservative on on the Espionage Act. I mean, I've worked on it and dealt with Espionage Act cases for over two decades uh, I, the difference that I saw at the Espionage Act, and you're right in your statistic, the Obama administration, in a general way, prosecuted more people under that statute than any prior presidency 
all of them together. All together. Right. And uh, But it, we were talking like seven. Right, you know, right. Eight. I mean, we're talking a small. I think it was nine. Something the to- yeah, nine, nine. And the total before that was one or two. No, total. there was more, it was more than that. And these are leak. Okay, there, there's a difference between the Espionage Act is very encompassing. It, it covers spying like what we would consider spying to be. Aldrich James. Right. Robert Hansen. Uh, the Rosenbergs. And then it covers cla- leaks of classified information by third parties, authorized third parties generally. And what changed in that, and I had a number of those people, I, I worked on a number of those right. cases that the Obama administration went after, which I'll say some of those cases started during the Bush administration, at least from an investigative yes, standpoint. Yes, that's true. And it culminated in prosecution in the Obama administration. Having represented intelligence officers in the 90s who were pursued under the statute as possible defendants, uh, I'll say that what really changed that gave the Obama administration this nomenclature as being the top of the the top was technology. Uh, These cases were... Finally, for them, easy to prosecute because they had evidence, predominantly email, uh, that people, the government was able Uh, to Oh, there's that magic word again, email. Yeah, I mean, that's what was going on the entire time. And in fact, if you look at some of the cases that were prosecuted, either the defendant or the reporter or both were really sloppy in their tradecraft and took steps that contributed to the individual being caught as the leaker. Uh, so in, in that sense, I, I don't have a particular problem with the number overall. There were other issues that one can get into that the Obama administration pushed that we haven't seen yet in the Such Trump as. administration about journalists. Uh, two instances that there were very troubling. One was uh, in the search for one leaker, the Obama administration subpoenaed and grabbed uh, the Associated Press's like a hundred reporters phone records. Right. So it, it wasn't just, I think, hey, I think, you know, this one AP reporter was the, was the reporter reporting on the story. Let's grab that person's cell phone and work phone and home phone records. It was, we grabbed a, a number of the phones at the AP office of people who had nothing to do with the leak. You know, they were doing other reporting, nothing to do with the federal government. That was much broader than ever before. And the AP was not given any advance notice. Uh, the Obama, once that became known, the Obama administration redid its internal policies so that reporters are now supposed to get some sort of notice before the subpoena is executed upon so that they could challenge it if they wanted. The second thing was uh, a Fox News reporter, James Rosen, was listed as an unindicted co-conspirator in the Stephen Kim case, which, quite frankly, legally is completely accurate because he, he under the Espionage Act, uh, there is no re- press There's no defense. reporter's There's privilege. There's no reporter's privilege. That's a state privilege. There is no federal reporter's privilege. Yes, we talked to uh, Jamie Raskin about that. The reporter's yeah. privilege. He's working on a shield law to give reporters that privilege. But doesn't the First Amendment protect you from that? It, not under the statute. Not yeah. and, and, it, and the problem has always been even a reporter's privilege, if it's created at the federal level, 
is probably never going to pass into law if it has an exception for classified information. I mean, there's a lot of reporters' privilege issues that can arise that have nothing to do with classified information. That's its own little body of law, and that, right. that's where we're really talking about the distinction. But the policy has always been that reporters are never pursued uh, for punishment under the Espionage Act, even though they could be, even though I could be as, as right. a lawyer, if I have unauthorized access to classified information. Only once uh, in World War II was there a grand jury convened to go after reporters in Chicago for having uh, reported classified information about the Battle of Midway. I mean, Mark, how would you, the Pentagon Papers today couldn't be published. I mean, Daniel Ellsberg came forward, and that was, I mean, there was a publish or not publish, and infamously the Washington Post said, you know, how do you defend your right to publish? You publish. And what's fascinating about that case, because that's, it's a civil case, and that determined... But that was classified information. No, no, absolutely, yeah. Uh, national defense, the same same thing. Yeah. We always we use the term in, in that case, national defense information, because the Espionage Act is from 1917. We didn't know right. the term <laughs> We, so it's, but it's the same thing. And in, that was a civil case to get an injunction against the New York Times and the Washington Post. And the Supreme Court ruled that there was an incredibly high burden in order for the government to stop publication. What was fascinating, more fascinating to me in that case is that four of the nine justices gave either explicit or at least implicit indication that had the U.S. government sought to prosecute the New York Times and the Washington Post instead of seek a civil injunction, that they would have potentially gone the other route, the other way, meaning that the they court would have supported the court would have signed off on it and said, you can go after these journalists for criminal penalties. It was the notion of where the First Amendment prevented uh, an injunction being imposed. And b big, big distinction. Now, so is the First Amendment in peril? Uh, yeah, I was just going to go now with this court. You know, it it is, uh, it's in more danger. I mean, who who knows? You know, we'll we'll never. We'll, hopefully, we'll never find out. But you know, the the mere notion of okay, this justice is this new justice is liberal or this new justice is conservative by their history doesn't mean that they're going to go that route. Justice Souter certainly didn't who was a George Bush appointee, and even Justice Roberts uh, at times right. has, has not gone the way he was predicted to have gone based on his history because of apparently the position he sees himself in now as a chief justice. So we'll have to see what happens with now Justice Kavanaugh. Well, the fear there, is it not? I mean, that the thin veneer of civility and impartiality has been stripped away and lawyers and judges, and I got a lot of them in the family, said what disturbed them about the Kavanaugh process was not, uh, of course, it was the charges of sexual assault or the, the allegation of sexual assault, but what lost them uh, from supporting Kavanaugh was his own demeanor in, in the hearing. A very partisan tenor was, was struck. There'll be revenge for years to come. It's a, it's a, this is a revenge hit from the Clintons. And just the the non-judicial temperament from a from someone who's supposed to be very stoic and very measured in his responses to people. Completely agree that that is what 
bothered me. The, I mean, again, put, putting aside everything, sexual else. assault, sexual harassment. I mean, uh, nobody's right. in support of that. But the, I, I've, again, I've been in D.C. for a quarter century. I'm well beyond the notion of. I'm sorry, did you not know there would be a conservative Supreme Court justice right. nominee with a Republican administration in the Go same figure. way that it'll be someone more to the left when it's a Democratic? I mean, then the question is just, okay, you know, are they judicially and or intellectually qualified? You know, President Bush nominated, uh, President Junior Bush nominated Harriet Myers, which probably nobody remembers. Right, I do. And she was White House counsel. And the fact of the matter was she wasn't qualified. To, to be on the Supreme Court. She just didn't have the pedigree background from an intellectual standpoint. She was, you know, I guess did fine in the White House Kavanaugh, counsel's office. Kavanaugh has that. And yeah, in fact, absolutely. And That's voted, right. Exactly. That's what I mean. Right. And voted with uh, Merrick Garland, the one who didn't get a hearing, 93% of the time. Yeah. yeah. So that. So intellectually. Yes. I mean, you know, look, that, that's generally, historically, at least in our lifetime, uh, well, not even our life. Let's say the last 30 years, really, because it was, I think, even different in the 60s when we would have been kids. But ah, uh, uh, yes, I remember them well. Yes. <laughs> you know, and there there were some Supreme Court justices who did not make it through the nomination process in, in the 60s. Well, and remember Bork. Um, Bork didn't yeah. make it through basically not on personality, just on his ideas. That that was what killed him. But in this case, and I, and I guess as the confluence of all these things that we've been talking about come together. The press for the last two weeks, no, there's been no story, but Kavanaugh and the press has, as I, I maintain, um, has published stories that probably wouldn't have been published in the past. The second accuser, the third accuser. Uh, I mean, Dr. Ford's would, because that was vetted and there was some corroboration for what she said occurred. She did step forward and testify at that point in time. You, you, you're covering that story. When she was out, she tried to come uh, forward in a, a, a surreptitious manner prior to the nomination process while he was still a finalist, and she got outed and she came out. So some of this would have been reported, but the thing with Kavanaugh, again, that just when, when I go back to it and, and what uh, jurists tell me, what lawyers, uh, judges tell me, is it was his testimony – in reaction to her testimony that was so iconically now satirized on Saturday Night Live. Yeah, that by really, Matt Damon. Yeah, by Matt you know, Damon. I, I gave that – it was one of my quotes to some uh, newspaper that, you know, forever in history, Judge Ka Justice Kavanaugh is going to be Matt Damon. <laughs> kind of scary. Yeah. I, I mean, but doesn't it, it – do we can we get back to I mean, first of all, we got him because they got rid of the supermajority rule. They, you know, they they got rid of that. You don't have to have 60 people agreeing anymore. It's just a simple majority. So by the thinnest of margins, the thinnest margin ever, ever. 50 to 48, this guy sits on the, the Supreme Court. And there are those who are saying, look, the, the GOP is uh, gambled. One, of course, we expected a conservative jurist from from this administration anybody i agree with you anybody who thought it would be otherwise was living under a rock i mean that's just silly but and, and he was and is qualified as as far as you know his abilities but the demeanor is still the question yeah no very much so i when he i think most people other than the most extreme partisan people would understand and, and probably 
guys more so if you were accused and if you're in his shoes and you say I'm being falsely accused of some incredible allegation that could be career ending and certainly personally devastating from your reputational standpoint. Again, with the assumption is, hey, I'm taking the position. This is a false accusation against me. Right. I'm going to be angered. I'm going to be emotional. I don't even have a problem with that, although that is not what we would typically see. Although, you know, just, judge. Justice Thomas made some very strong. I remember watching that in law school. Uh, you know, he made some very strong statements. High tech lynching. High tech lynching. Uh, there were, and there was one other comment he made that was, uh, that gave that type of connotation. All I remember for that, from that hearing, I, and I sat through those was the pubic hair on a Coke can. Yeah. I cannot get over that. I, for the life of me. But it was the notion when Judge Kavanaugh went conspiratorial. And, you know, this is right. all the, the Clintons' fault and people who are supportive of the Clintons and who won't let go of the fact that they lost the election. And and I sitting there listening to that point going, what, when did anybody make that comment beforehand? Where, where did – when did the Clintons – I don't even remember the Clintons being mentioned in the course of the entire nomination won. process. <laughs> you know, I, I, other than saying, well, he wouldn't have been nominated if Clinton had won. Well, duh. I, I mean, I don't even know what – that is to discuss for that. So I, I agree that that was the most disturbing and is the most disturbing of concern I have with now Justice Kavanaugh. And we'll just have to see how how it plays out. I, I, well, I, I felt like the whole thing, Democrats and Republicans did not do this country any favor. Oh, no. Process. I mean, that the Democrats were that was a that, given. Yeah. So let's take uh, one of the things that I, I really want to touch on that we haven't talked about yet. And I've just got to ask this question. The government keeps us from information that should be provided to us on almost a daily basis. Freedom of information. We hear a preach every day about transparency in this government. I don't see it. Do you? Yeah. <laughs> and I can say the same thing about the Obama administration, too. Absolutely. Which, which touted itself significantly as the wanted to be the transparency presidency. I never saw that. And had a lot of issues with it. Now, there were a lot of good things that came. In fact, again, in the 25 years I've been here, each president, and this one is still under consideration, each presidency actually did a lot for transparency by way of numbers, either trying to reduce the number of classified documents or trying to increase the number of declassified records, whether historically or current. But what has been interesting, and I think we have to separate the two between Freedom of Information Act issues, which are agency decisions predominantly. Sometimes there's White House involvement. There was in the Obama administration. I can't say we've seen or not seen in the Trump administration, the degree to which the White House is calling the shots. Well, that on, in itself may speak FOIA. to transparency. <laughs> but the the other issue is access. Right. And, and for you as a White House reporter, it's hard to have access when there are no press conferences in the White House, when the president doesn't give any press briefings. So this administration from that standpoint is completely different from any prior presidency. On a FOIA aspect, I have more FOIA lawsuits against this, this administration than previously, which is not an indication of that this administration is doing anything uh, differently. It's just that we've been more active now. I've always 
been suing the administration since 1993, meaning any administration, under FOIA. I, we have countless dozens of lawsuits every year uh, for it. I This administration, interestingly enough, and I think it goes back to the self-interest side of things, for the most part, this White House doesn't pay much attention to the agencies. Yeah, I've noticed that myself. You know, it implements <laughs> policy. And if we talk, take a look at the immigration executive orders, uh, it did all those without barely consulting with the agencies. And when it consulted, it did so at the last second. And it really – it's been writing its policies at the White House rather than in consultation with the agencies. So most of the agencies are keeping their heads down and just going about their own business, trying to do what they think – is best for the U.S. government and the, and their agency, regardless of who's president. And for the most part, they're able to do that. So we run into the same problems under FOIA that we always run into. It takes too long. The agencies don't have enough resources, whether financially or manpower. Uh, but and they bullshit you. Let's uh, they do always this. do. I mean, they all do. They <laughs> always do that. We, now this administration, our FOIA lawsuits are very much geared towards exposing misconduct. And and in, and actually, the one thing that has been incredibly interesting in our FOIA lawsuits has not been what we found as a result of the lawsuit, but what we didn't find. Example. Me meaning the, f the executive order, the first one on immigration, it was requiring... It was going to uh, – certain people from certain countries couldn't come into the United States. And airlines would have to be the front line of defense, right? Ha the airline would have to know, don't let this person on because they're from Yemen or Libya <laughs> right. or whatever other country – Syria, whatever countries were on the list, the seven or so that were on the list. And so we FOIA'd, you know, TSA and, and ICE and other agencies that would have interacted with the airlines to tell them what the policy is, how to deal, how to implement the policy. And there was nothing. There were no documents. <laughs> the airlines had no – that? Yeah, I, mean, that, I mean, I think I was more – concerned about that than ever I mean, before <laughs> that kind of i mean nothing <laughs> there was nothing well, there was nothing the there were no communications they just put this policy into place and i guess figured out everybody would decide how to do it or uh during the transition it's like somebody got a wild hair up their butt and the administration said hey this sounds like a good idea let's do it my, my friend, and they didn't research it. No, right? not at all. They just like we think this is what we want to do, and this is what we're going to do, and we'll let everybody figure it out later on. Walt, my, well, my, he said he was going to stir up the swamp. Yeah, <laughs> my my friend and colleague Walter Schaub, who who now is with Crew, uh, was the head of the Office of Government Ethics. Uh, not a political appointee; he's a right. civil servant. And we, I was representing MSNBC, and we FOIA'd all the transition communications of, of the Trump incoming Trump administration with the Office of Government Ethics, because that is the office that educates the people coming into the government. And then once they're in senior White House positions about what they can and cannot do, what they should and should not do. And it was it was his humorous in a sad, pathetic way uh, when we got a hold of these documents that 
was basically the head of government ethics sending emails to the transition saying, where are you? Why aren't you responding to me? We we have a month until you're inaugurated. We have 15 days until you're inaugurated. I still haven't heard from you. The emails I'm responding to are being kicked back. I left a voicemail. You haven't called me back. I have to tell you things about how the system works, what you're supposed to do when you're in place. It, it was and the it most pathetic nowhere. thing. It went nowhere. It was the most pathetic Eisen, thing I've seen. Norm Eisen told us pretty much the same story when we interviewed him. He was, it, and he was the the ethics guru inside the White House. Yeah. He was, yeah, yeah, for the Obama administration. They're very similar counterparts, uh, and now they both work together for Crew. That's where Norm Eisen is as well. Right. And, you know, look, and it and it's frustrating because you're seeing. Look, what have you seen? What is different about this administration than all the other ones that I've seen? I've had problems with all of them. I've liked all of them a little bit. I hate, you know, disliked all of them a little bit. You know, you can always pick and choose. What's really different in this administration is one, uh, for good or bad, and and there'll be a difference between how we in the D.C. area, inside the Beltway, as it says, view inside it. Inside the bubble. Yeah. <laughs> view it versus the people out in the heartland. Um, you know, they're not, you're not. They're not your typical politicians. They, they don't function in the same way. There's a lot of – there could be good things about that. Frankly, I think there's a lot of bad things about that because the system has a way of functioning when the people know how to operate it. And if you don't know how to operate heavy machinery, you know, you're not supposed to. And and that's where some of the problem, where some of the stumbles are for sure. But what's good about it? Uh, I mean the good about it, sometimes you do need to shake things up a little bit. Uh, sometimes you do fall into a rut. I mean, I see it even as a lawyer now, experienced lawyer, where you rely on, well, I know this is how we've done it for all these years, so I'm not going to try something different new, right. or new or innovative. Um, I, I in, in, in fighting the government, I always have to still take that position. But I can think of things that just for myself, where as a young 27-year-old lawyer, I would push things probably more than I do as a 51-year-old lawyer, because I know it's going to fail. And so why waste my time in doing that? But of course, if I don't do it, I'll never know if maybe maybe there could be a successful um, attempt. But for this administration, where you see people who were historically career civil servants, having issues with this administration, when you see people who were Republicans, uh, like... Uh, what, what, All of them? Yeah. You know, <laughs> people who worked with John McCain, uh, what was Steve's, what's Steve's last name, who uh, was his campaign manager. Right. Uh, blanking on, sorry, Steve, uh, blanking on your last we name. We love you, Steve. Uh, you know, and Norm Ornstein and, and other, and George Will and, and these other, and, uh, uh oh, Jonah, yeah. Jonah Goldberg, you know, who are taking this administration to Anna task. Navarro on CNN. Anna Navarro. Yeah. I mean, Tim, yeah. there are plenty of people that. When have we seen that before? No, we haven't. We haven't. But to the base. Historically. To the base, that's, I mean, to play devil's advocate, that's what he said he would do, would come in and shake up and drain the swamp. So that speaks to that does it not he's draining the swamp it does and i think yes it does for them and, and the problem i think for those of us who are on the inside and deal with these issues day in and day out is that the people who are saying hey i only i see you draining the swamp this is great three cheers raise the red for the american flag and waving it etc is they're only looking at what sort of the the outward effect is rather than how the sausage is being made. And how and the I, sausage is being made is horrible 
in this administration. Uh, it, it's and is it is it a long term effect or a short term effect? I mean, because well, it's a good question. I mean, that's what I I'll look tell at. you in five years. Yeah, I mean, that's the idea. I mean, where do we get part of the reason why there's a reticence to change some things as as it was explained to me is that we've experimented in the past and we found through trial and error that there are certain ways that may not be as sexy and may not have but but in the end are more sound because long-term effects whereas bumping up the national deficit and uh for short-term gain in the economy may not be that although the tariffs thing everyone talked about tariffs being a horrible thing so far it hasn't I mean, he did bail out to the tune of, what, $12 billion farmers, but he's offset some of those tariff losses that way. Um, but the scream against tariffs so far has not panned out. Well, I will. It, it, I don't think I can think of anything that the Trump administration has done that, frankly, impacts me in a way that I feel it other than the stress and everything that's happened from a work standpoint, but from a policy implementation, you know, I don't think anything I'm doing fine. Uh, I mean, if anything, I have too much business as a result of this administration, (laughs) but yeah, so I I can see how people see, but you got to look beyond that. And, you know, people don't pay attention enough to history. I'm, I'm a historian by nature and degree, uh, as my university says. And, you know, I think back at times where presidents in different agencies or even in cabinet positions have brought people in who are from the outside completely, never been inside the U.S. government before. We're going to bring them in. We're going to shake things up. They're a businessman. I remember there was a deputy CIA director that Reagan brought in in the early 80s. Shake things up because this is completely different. We need to get away from the problems we had with the CIA in the 60s and the 70s with right. all sorts of illegal things. And it was a horrible experiment because they didn't know how to function. And I can think of a number of them who end up going to jail because they end or resigning in disgrace because they ran afoul of ethics rules. And, and the, the notion that sometimes just because you weren't in government isn't necessarily a good thing to bring a businessman into the system because it's a completely different system. Well, just yeah. doesn't work that I way mean, at the, times. The, the argument is that we've become an oligarchy. That th- today businesses are like the feudal lords of, of you know the barons in the Middle Ages, and that we are in in effect uh, step backwards instead of forwards as far as and it's because we've brought in business people instead of people who understand that government is not business. Yeah, it, it's very different. Uh, to run a government than it is to run a business. It does, and, and there are definitely things that could be taken from business that would make government more efficient. I mean, if anything, I wish, frankly, the Walt Disney Company would come in and run the U.S. government because do you ever see any trash at Walt Disney World? You know, <laughs> do, do you ever see anything where the, you know, they figured out how to do lines and, and, and everything and it, well, very few customer complaints at Walt Disney. Are the, do right, crocodiles but, eat? Children, uh, but children. That, was, that was an aberration uh, and horrible situation, and you, well, I'm not I'm, sure how they missed that one beforehand. But in general, Walt Disney is flawless and making more and more money every damn year because of Marvel movies and things like that. Why don't we have them run the government? But you know, we well, don't. I've heard this government is like Walt Disney World on a bad acid trip, but that's <laughs> that's only from the Democrats. I, tell, I, I used to. <laughs> 
I used to wear, and no one at the CIA ever caught on to this, but every time I would go out there for meetings, I would wear a Mickey Mouse tie uh, because I looked at them as a Mickey Mouse organization, and then I felt that I was, one, giving them too much credit and insulting the Mickey Mouse Walt Disney organization. So I, I switched to Looney Tune ties now when I go up there. But even Looney Tunes was probably Warner Brothers is still much better company. One of the things I like to ask everybody when we sit down for this uh, interview is everyone complains about the government, but how many people actually do something about it? So I ask you, do you vote? I do. I vote. I voted ever since. Uh, let me think. So I, my first presidential election was 88, but I guess I turned 18 in 85. My first was in 80. I voted in every one since yeah. Now I have I have always voted in every election every year i don't think there's a i don't think there's a year i i've never voted norm when we sat down and talked with norm for example he says voting is the minimum you should be involved obviously you're involved through your business you're involved but people need to protest people need to get involved as civic organizations vote in your parish council whatever you do vote at your synagogue vote at your mosque whatever it is wherever you're going everywhere that you can be involved and it seems to me like people do a lot of griping these days without being involved nearly as much you no, know, I, I think that's true for a lot of people. Now, I stay out of politics uh, as much as possible. I try to make it clear that for, I am— For a guy who files a lot of FOIA. Yeah. Well, but I make sure I'm, I'm nonpartisan. I mean, I have, to do, I have to deal with politics. I have to deal with members of Congress. I represent mem- members of Congress on both sides of the aisle. Uh, I'm, not, I'm not wedded. I, I worked for the British government when I was in college for a member of parliament back in, 30 years ago. And there was a lot. I love England. And there was a lot of great things. Still is about the British system. I did not like the party system that they had there, in the sense that if you were either a Tory or a Labour party, it didn't matter who the candidate was. It was which party you represented. That's who got elected, regardless of who the person was. I I didn't like that. I we're think, seeing that here. I think we're seeing that here. M- more than we've ever seen in our lifetime. But when I, again, when I was in working in England in 88, that's not generally what I thought I saw in our system. You know, you would elect, I know for me, I would vote for Democrats. I would vote for Republicans. I voted for the individual and I have voted for both, both parties. Full disclosure, I have too, but that's, you know, like even to sit down today and yeah, as I've told people, if you criticize the current administration, it doesn't mean you're automatically taking you know, the side of his opposition. I mean, I've often said the only thing worse than a Republican is a Democrat. That Lewis Black said that you know there's one's a party of no ideas and the other is a party of shitty ideas. So yeah. you know, it's like I have no idea and I know how to make it worse. <laughs> and that's pretty much the way I, I look waiting, at both of them. I'm waiting for an independent, a new third party, an independent party. It just doesn't seem like it's I'd feasible. Give, but I would be in it. Yeah, I would give a king salary just to see someone with some common sense and decency. I, it, it would. <laughs> Yeah, other than Ross Perot, I suppose. But <laughs> although now Ross Perot well. looks actually quite good, uh, thinking back to 1991, <laughs> 92. But yeah, now, I mean, I am fortunate as a lawyer. I can do something about it. So, yeah, one, sure, I vote, but frankly, I'm in Maryland, so my vote doesn't really mean very much. Unless, uh, you're, uh, unless you're registered. I'm a, I'm a registered independent, uh, as so I've always been. Even, you don't get to vote in, in the I primaries. Don't get to vote, right. And, and Montgomery County and most of the state of Maryland, except for governor, right. we, we elect Republican governors. 
but other than that, certainly down here in Montgomery County, it's all Democrats control. I, it, it's fascinating to me. We, we had a, a, a candidate forum uh, recently and um, of, for county executive. So we had the three candidates. One is a Republican, one is a Democrat, one is an independent. And the independent candidate, who actually is a Democrat, uh, says there's just no way the Republican win because there's can win because there's not enough registered Republicans. And she completely discounted the independent voters or the fact that a Democrat could vote for a Republican, which has happened. It's the arrogance I find in the Democratic Party is what I think is most annoying to me. Well, you know, you mentioned Jamie Raskin, who is our current congressman in this area. And before that, it was Chris Van Hollen, who's now right. our senator. But before Chris, it was Connie Morella, who was, was a, Republican. a Republican. And the reason why she won for quite a number of years is she was very moderate, very centrist, great on constituent services. And she ended up losing as we became far more polarized and politicized during the Bush years after the invasion in Iraq and Afghanistan. And that wonderful word, gerrymandering. And gerrymandering, which is the bane of, of everything in politics right now. And if anything would frankly change things, it's going to have to be that. But, uh, you know, the notion was don't elect a Republican because they're going to vote for the GOP on certain issues like a Supreme Court nominee. So even though we like Connie Morella, uh, which she had very high marks – uh, I think she became ambassador after she lost ambassador of France, as I recall, mm -hmm. after she lost. Um, and so it's been a Democratic seat now for whatever, 15 years or so, four, 14 years, I forget. Um, so at least as a lawyer, I, can, I do do something about it. I, I hold the administration to task. Uh, I, I am not a Trump fan. I mean, I could – I'm not a fan of any politician. I, I mean, I usually, I'm usually, yeah, I, but I, I have, you know, I go out of my way on Twitter to say, you know, hashtag resistance. It's not a resistance against the GOP or Republican. I don't think he is a Republican, quite frankly. No, he used to be a Democrat. Yeah. I, I think he's a, he, he, I think, and, and, you know, correct me if I'm wrong, but this is a, a, a very unique event in the history of the United States. He's a political party of character it's him it's not we the people who was it that said it recently um where it's not we the people anymore um it's me the president i think that's true and that's as we talk about authoritarianism and uh, oligarchy etc it feels like it the first family i mean like i i, I mean I, I i've said this publicly to people i was not when it looked like it was going to be a clinton versus bush uh, race. I didn't want either of them, even though both of them I thought were certainly qualified to be presidents of the United States by way of their backgrounds. But it's like, do we really need another Bush? Do we really need another Clinton? Are there not any? Uh, are there no other families in the United States that we can elect? Where are the Kennedys? <laughs> yeah, I mean, this was There's not third one. what our. Again, I look back to the British system, and I'm like, I. I was not in favor of monarchy because that's not the system I have been raised under. Uh, but that seems to have been what we had been given at the time. And But Trump – resistance to Trump is not a resistance to a, a partisan idea. And that's what I find fascinating that people don't seem to, to understand out in the heartland, that they, they're so narrow – people are just too narrow-minded to 
think that, well, if you say something negative negative against the president, regardless of who the president is, that must mean you're on the other side politically or ideologically. No, no, it doesn't. Not, not at all. But the bottom line is I'm here to hold this president accountable, whether it's through whistleblowers, through FOIA, uh, through the lawsuit for Cork Wine Bar, whatever it might be. And I will continue to do that in every day that he is in office. And you know what? When he loses his office, whether that's through a re-election campaign that he loses or that he doesn't run or he's impeached or he uh, would would potentially pass away, whatever could happen, that he resigns, who knows? Melania says, get out. Uh, whatever way he stops being president. I'm not touching that line. That's, yeah, right. <laughs> okay, go ahead. Whatever way he stops being president, the day after that, when there's a new president, I will sue that president too. That's well, I, and that, you know that's as good a place as any to stop. I wish you luck in all your endeavors, especially the FOIA stuff. We we file it constantly, we work at it constantly, and it's an uphill battle. I don't think people quite understand, um, you know, that the fake media and the enemy of the people are actually working for the people, and it's very difficult in this day and age to make people understand that. But hopefully, through your efforts, they do. And Mark, I really, I, I really do appreciate you sitting down and talking with a fascinating conversation. We got to do it again sometime. Anytime. I appreciate it. This is uh, just ask the question. I am Brian Caraman. Thanks for joining us. Oh, and I got to say before we leave, thanks for doing this on the porch. I loved it. <laughs> <laughs> Next time. <laughs> <laughs>